Good morning, everyone. My name is Emily, and I have been given the privilege of joining in on Jamie's theories about uh, wisdom that we've been going through. So uh, it's really been a, ooh, I'm gonna, it's really been a privilege to um, be sitting under this series and all the amazing things that uh, we're learning about wisdom. And truly, 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 there could not be a better time for there to be a, a need for wisdom. The 21st century is full of challenges. There's an overwhelming amount of information. Your blogs, your newspapers, your podcasts, they all say something different. They all recommend something different. And we all need to have uh, a plumb line that just directly connects us to what God is doing, what he wants to do in the earth that we can rely on and move forward in. And so I'm excited to kind of just add a little bit of my perspective today, um, and what we're going to be talking about is a delightful way, so wisdom, a delightful way. Um, I think in today's kind of cultural climate, outside of all the resources we have available, we have social media access to Facebook, to Instagram, to YouTube, to TikTok, and those are not always the friendliest places, to, especially to Christian belief. If you see someone in the comments go like, praise the Lord, then you'll see other people in the comments saying like, oh my God, I hate God. Um, and, and you know, it, we laugh about it now, but if you're ever in the workplace and you have to make a case for Christ, or if you ever have a friend who you have to admonish in the Lord who's not a Christian, like they say, hey, I want to change my pronouns, and you have to stand up for faith and stand up for what God says in the Bible about two genders. Those types of circumstances, they're really difficult. And you'll get a range of reactions from everything from confused looks, being like, you believe God exists? What? Does anybody believe that in the 21st century? You know, to really angry opposition and derision. So my question is, I've been reflecting on this climate and wisdom, is where does our boldness come from in such a time? And how do we adhere to biblical wisdom amidst the growing hostility to Christian faith? Certainly, we have brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted. I've met many of them from Pakistan, from India, from North Korea, all of these places. And there's something about them. I went to class with many of them when, my, when I did seminary. And there's something about the delight they have in the word of God that sets them apart. It's not just their faith, it's the delight in his word and who he is that they get their boldness from. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Just a quick recap, though, of some of the things that we have learned so far, in case you haven't been here for some of the series. The fear of the Lord is a really key concept of wisdom. Um, two really great verses on the fear of the Lord, although not exhaustive by any means. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is the beginning of insight. One of the things I love about this verse is that when we acknowledge the fear of the Lord, when we allow ourselves to be in awe and reverence of his character, that we actually begin to grow in more knowledge of him. When we put ourselves in that position, we get more and more access to revelation, more and more access to, to wisdom, and it's just this like happy cycle of, of uh, growing in intimacy with the Lord. 
But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. And so one important part of wisdom is that wisdom is not just knowledge. It must affect our practice. It is the application of knowledge that makes wisdom stand out. Another thing that we haven't exactly touched on, but it's been in there, it's been um, in some of our uh, teachings so far, is the priority of wisdom. So the priority of wisdom is that it is more valuable than anything else. It is more um, worth searching for than anything else. And there are several verses on this. First, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. And this verse actually makes me laugh because it seems a little bit redundant, but like the beginning of wisdom is the realization that you need to get wisdom. You know, we've all been in that place like, okay, <laughs> clearly I've been put to shame in my lack of wisdom, so now I need to actually go to the place of prayer, go to the word. Um, another great verse on this is, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you desire cannot compare with wisdom. Then another fantastic verse from Ecclesiastes. Now, Ecclesiastes, the author, is kind of searching for wisdom. They're kind of trying to figure out whether wisdom is actually valuable. But at the end of the 12 chapters, in the last verse, they go, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So we have the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. We have the priority of wisdom, that it is more desirable and worth searching for than anything else. And then we also have the fact that our wisdom, biblical wisdom, is from above. You can't find it on Google. You can't ask Google what to do in all the challenging situations of life. You'll get nonsense back. You can't ask ChatGPT. That's even more nonsense. Wisdom from above is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's inspired by the character of God, and so it's going to reflect that character. We see from James 3 that it is, first of all, pure, peace-loving, gentle, accommodating, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap the fruit of righteousness. We've got an Old Testament passage from Proverbs. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil but a fool is reckless and careless. And then again, James, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by his good conduct, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And the point I want to make about wisdom from above is that it is ethical. It's not just, it doesn't just help me make decisions. It has an ethical and moral imperative that reflects God's righteousness, that reflects God's character. So that every time we walk in wisdom, we reflect a part of God. It's a part of a testimony to others about who he is. So now that we've recapped, let's go back to our question. How do we respond to all the controversial topics in our day and have a joy and boldness in doing it? It's through delight. And the one thing that I think you can find a lot about delight is in the Psalms. The Psalms is constantly delighting in the Lord. Psalm 119 is a particular central focus of that. And so here's just a few, just a few things on delight. Because I went through Psalm 119 last week, and I wrote out by hand every single verse about delight, according to what I would categorize as delight. And uh, it took me about 40 minutes 
and my hand cramped by the end of it, and I was like, that was not a great idea. <laughs> I could have just counted. But here are some of my favorites. So verses 23 and 24, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 61, though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. Verse 69, the insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. And verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And why are these some of my favorites from Psalm 119? It's precisely because of the contrast of the struggle and of the difficulty and the resolve to continue to delight in the Lord. And particularly verse 71, I think it's beautiful because the psalmist recognizes that if he had not gone through affliction in the first place, he would have never had the revelation of wisdom. Then there's some really exciting ones. <laughs> We've got, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Or, therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. And I think these verses are quite challenging to me personally. Because if I think about my own life and like try to do a comparison, because you know chocolate wasn't available to David, so I would replace that with chocolate. But how often would you say that a piece of chocolate is sweeter than your morning devotional time? I think sometimes if I were in a place of uh, trouble in the day or stressed out, I might more quickly head for a bar of chocolate than for prayer or to seek wisdom. Another good way to put this in perspective is if you had the chance to possess a priceless gold heirloom or sit in on a Bible study for a year, and you had to choose only one or the other, which one would you choose? And it's easy to justify, well, like, well, the gold heirloom, I could sell that, that could be part of my inheritance, you know, it, there's a long-term plan behind that. But there's also a long-term plan behind sitting under Scripture. Because David understood the reward and quality of God's word, he set, his desire, he set his heart to desire it above all else. Now, we can't go through all of Psalm 119 because it's 100 and something verses long, and we don't have that time. So we're going to go to the mini Psalm 119, which is Psalm 19. Very easy to remember. And we're going to read through the whole chapter. So pull out your Bible and read along if you'd like. Otherwise, it's going to be up on the screen. And then we'll, kind of, we'll go through and we'll break down verse by verse what Psalm 19 is saying. So Psalm 19, starting with verses 1 to 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its feet. This first part of the psalm is about God's wisdom in creation. And then the next part of the psalm goes to the wisdom in God's word. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter than honey are drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Then there's the psalmist's response to the revelation of wisdom in creation and in God's word. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So let's break it down, starting with wisdom and creation. So this first sentence about the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork is something that we could take for granted because we see it every day. You go out, the sky is blue, or more often than not here in the UK, it's cloudy. But, you know, uh, I'm getting used to that, you know, <laughs> two years of getting used to it. Um, and when you go out at night, you look up, and sometimes you can see the stars, but we live in a world where we have a lot of light pollution, so we don't actually get to enjoy the expanse of the skies very often. Um, but David would have been in um, a kind of desert climate where he would have seen blue skies much more often, and he would have certainly seen the crystal clear galaxies as he looked up into the sky. So it would have been a dazzling sight that he gets to gaze on and meditate on how amazing the display is in the heavens. You know, the sentence, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard, means the heavens can't actually speak. That's a good thing. I think it would be quite scary if we heard the heavens speaking to us. Um, but their message, their voice, their message goes out into all the earth. So everyone has access to this message of God's splendor. Everyone is, um, as Paul says in Romans 1, that no one has an excuse. We all have access to creation and to reflect on his eternal qualities and his divinity in creation. I think the other amazing thing about this, if you think about it, is the sun comes up and rises every day and sets every night, and it does so without fail every day since we've been born, and we never think about it. And it's been happening like that, not just this week, not just this month, not just for decades, but for millennia, for thousands of years, it's been steadily working like clockwork since the moment that time began. Now, in this second part of the passage, when David is talking about, in them he has set a tent for the sun, this is actually David kind of using um, the surrounding beliefs of other nations as a polemic. So, other nations believed that the sun itself was a god, and they would have described it by allegory in such ways. Um, and David kind of corrects them and goes, no, the sun is not a god. There is a creator who put the sun in the sky, and he has given it wisdom. Nothing is hidden from its heat. So now that we've got this kind of picture of the heavens and the sky, I wanted to kind of make it more visual because I feel like we don't always grasp the magnitude of it. So I've brought this little uh, picture of 
comparison of the planets. So you can see Earth is the tiny, tiny little dot beside the blue orb, if everyone can see that. So I actually am not going to try to name the planet. Uh, but yes, the very tiny one that's next to the blue orb is Earth, and obviously the sun is in the background. In this picture, um, I don't know if the number will even mean anything to us because it's so astronomical, but the sun is 109 times larger than the Earth. 1.3 million Earth-sized planets could fit inside the sun. And a car driving nonstop at an average speed of 100 kilometers per hour or 60 miles per hour would take about five years to travel around the sun. So I thought that this was pretty impressive, but then I came across a video that was even more impressive, but I couldn't show the video, so I've taken screenshots, so bear with. The first screenshot is this guy explaining that he's taken the scale of our galaxy and he's broken it down into one 910,000th of scale of actual size. So what he's holding is a tennis ball and that is to represent the size of the Earth. Okay? Then if that was the size of the Earth, then Jupiter would be the size of the ball that he's sitting next to. Okay? Right now, we, we can kind of wrap our heads around that. That's not too extreme, right? But just wait, just wait, okay? This is him outside of the building to display the size of the sun. So you've got Jupiter there in front. He's obviously holding the tennis ball, which you can't see. And then you've got the sun there. That's a, it takes up the size of a street if the Earth was the size of a tennis ball. Then here in the bottom right-hand corner, this is the brightest star in our sky that we can see. This is Sirius. Um, it is only, <laughs> only 8.6 light years away. Um, but as you can see, it is a bigger than a building. So a star just like the sun, but 20 times brighter than the sun and almost as large as that building there. Now, obviously, remember the Earth is the size all right, so that's pretty impressive, right? I thought that was impressive. Next one, here is Sirius next to Arcturus, which is another giant uh, star. And then that is next to Rigel. So Rigel is the blue one. Arcturus is the, the orange one. So as you can see, Rigel is a star. If the Earth was the size of a tennis ball, Rigel is a star that is as tall as this skyscraper in the photo, and yet it's exceeded in size by Arcturus, which takes up this giant highway. And further still, we have Betelgeuse in the next slide, which I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but uh, Betelgeuse. Right there, you can see Rigel that we just saw was massive next to the city is in blue. And then Arcturus is in orange there. Betelgeuse is one of the largest stars that we have identified. It's called a red supergiant. It is 642.5 light years away. It is 1,400 times larger than our sun and 100,000 times more luminous, so 100,000 times brighter. 1.6 million suns our sun could fit inside Betelgeuse. And the one next to it, UI, maybe? <laughs> I, 
I don't have any information about that one. That was at one point the largest star, but now we found another one called Stephenson. And I'll just tell you that this UYCC is half the size of Stephenson. So, you know, enlarging your mind what Stephenson look, looks like. Stephenson is 20,000 light years away. It is 2,150 times larger than our sun and 440,000 times more luminous, around 10 billion of our suns could fit inside Stephenson. Pretty crazy, right? When you look up at the sky and see them all twinkling, it's all very nice, but it's all quite massive. And Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that the Lord upholds this by the word of his power. By his word alone, this was created and upheld. And it has taken lifetimes of many scientists to measure the size and nature of these stars and understand even a little about their life cycles. Yet, and we're still learning, by the way, yet God upholds it all. So it's quite remarkable. When we talk about the wisdom of the Lord in creation, we're talking about someone who set these things in motion. They work seamlessly without fail, day after day after day. And when I think about that, I reflect on that idea that if God, by his wisdom, can set all of this in motion flawlessly, then how much more can he handle a few decades of my life? How much more trustworthy is he for my life? And how much more does he love me than a star, as amazing as that is? Back to scripture, there are a lot of things in the Old Testament that speak of the creative glory and the creative power of God and wisdom being involved in that. So I've put two here, and I'd like just to highlight a few things. The first is Job 28, where it says, From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living, but God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. And then it begins to describe, he looks to the ends of the earth and everything under the heavens, when he gave the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. And again, in Proverbs 8, there is this passage about how wisdom was used at the beginning of the world to create everything that exists. But one of the most remarkable things is at the end of this passage on wisdom and creation, and it says, if you just kind of drop to the yellow, the yellow there, it says, wisdom is being personified in this passage, so the wisdom is speaking. Um, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I, wisdom, was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of men. Let that sink in for a moment. Even as we are called to rejoice and delight in wisdom, God himself delights in wisdom. And beyond that, God delights in his wise creation. So if you've ever faced a difficult circumstance, if you've ever come up to a season of life where you've experienced much suffering, or if you've ever had a perpetual obstacle about something, and 
it's caused you to ask, God, why am I here? Why did you create me? Why would you allow me to endure such suffering? God, in his wisdom, created you so that he could delight in you and that you could delight in him, not just in this life, but forever. So the sum of this part, so the initial passage of Psalm 19 on God's wisdom creation is that it is delightful and it is trustworthy. If his wisdom has upheld these things for all this time, his wisdom is sufficient for our lives. And moreover, because God is the creator and author of my life, how much more does he have the right to tell me how to live it? Now we'll move on to the second part, which is the wisdom in God's word. So in the same way that God has revealed himself through creation, he has revealed himself specifically to us through his word. And these verses are referred to God differently. So creation, he's referred to as El, which is just kind of a generic word in Hebrew for God. But in these verses about his word, he's referred to as Yahweh, which uh, Jews would read as Adonai. And that is the name of the, his personal name that he gave to Israel when he revealed himself to them. So every time the word Adonai is used in something like the Psalms, it's calling back to God's choice to enter relationship with man. It's the choice for him to reveal himself to us. There's a, actually a privilege in God's wisdom because he's making a way for us to know him. He could have made it difficult. He could have said, I'm God, I'm in the heavens, figure me out. But he didn't do that. He chose to enter relationship with man and reveal himself through his word, which is very cool. Like, go read Deuteronomy, go read, like, the Theophany of Sinai and, like, all the things that he did to reveal himself to Israel and how he continues to do so today. We don't have time to get into that. It's quite fun. So let's look at some of the things that David is pointing out about God's word and the wisdom of God's word. The first is that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. When we say perfection, it calls to mind 2 Peter 1.3, that it gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's lacking in nothing, not in any way. Not in any way. Now, I understand the fact that when you go to read uh, scripture, you can't open New Testament and be like, what's the scripture about ChatGPT? I understand. You can't open the scripture and be, where's the, you know, where's the scripture about bulimia? There is nothing there that we, we can specifically point our finger on and say, well, this is the one verse. But if we read the whole context of God's wisdom, there are principles that allow us to understand how to navigate those things. Then the testimony of the Lord is sure. So it endures forever in heaven. It will never pass away. This reminds us of Psalm 119.89 where it says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. This is, it cannot change because God is unchanging. So when you choose to put your trust in it, you're choosing something that is sure and will carry you through. It cannot fail you. And thankfully, 
It makes wise the simple. So you don't have to be bright. You don't need a high IQ. You just need to trust in the Lord in order for wisdom to transform you. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So they are right. They are without contradiction. They are without error. If you ever perceive a contradiction in Scripture, it has more to do with your, uh, your lens that you're bringing to Scripture than an actual contradiction in Scripture itself. So there's always room to grow whenever we find something we believe is contradicting. And then the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It will never lead you into sin. And if such instruction does lead you into sin, it's a sign of false teaching. So the commandment of the Lord is pure. Now you notice that there's like law, testimony, precepts, commandment, just in the side. They just mean the word of God. There's nothing particularly special or distinguishing about one versus the other, so don't get caught up on that. I know some people do. So we have the word of the Lord revives our soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices our hearts so that engaging in wisdom actually brings you joy because there's a fruit to wisdom. There's a, there's a reward to wisdom. And it enlightens the eyes, which means that we have direction in the decisions that we face and we have the revelation of God at work, even if nothing seems to be happening in the natural. That is a great comfort and peace to us. Now we have the fear of the Lord is clean. So this is, and again, has to do with the rightness and the infallibility of God's word that endures forever. It cannot fade. It cannot corrode. It doesn't slowly become less accurate over time which is something that we come up against in our culture quite a lot. People say, oh, that was true for Israel. It's not true for us anymore. Oh, it was true for Galatia, but it's not true for us anymore. No, God's wisdom is constant. It doesn't corrode. It can't be corrupted. There is nothing truer or better morally than God's word. So it's not deceptive. God's word is never going to try to trick you it's never working against you. It is for your good. God's word is more to be desired than any gold. Sweeter than honey are dripping of the honeycomb. I've heard, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure if it's true, but I've heard that when young children in Israel learn about delighting in the word of God, that their teachers actually give them a taste of honey on a honeycomb for them to, to suck on while they listen to the teaching of the word of the Lord. And here's one of my favorite verses from this passage. It says, moreover, by them your servant is warned. That is such an amazing grace. Sometimes we chafe at boundaries. We chafe at like, well, God, why does God not allow me to do X? Or why can't I do Y? Like, it seems unfair. It doesn't seem like there's any negative consequences to it, so I should just do it anyways. But when he says, by them your servant is warned, and he's delighting in that fact. It's delighting in the fact that, God, you love me so much. You've chosen to reveal the things that will draw me away from you. You could have been apathetic. You could have not told me what would draw you away or what would draw me away and what would, what would separate our relationship. But you want me close. You want to be in my life. You want to be a present help to me. And so you specifically told me where the boundaries lie so that I can always stay close. It is an incredible mercy that God would choose to do that for us, that God would allow us 
to be close to him and who set those boundaries for them. And it reminds me of Psalm 16, where it says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a delightful inheritance. That wisdom, although sometimes it does set boundaries, it allows us to remain in the presence of God and experience fruitfulness in him and to remain there for the inheritance that he has set before us, not just in this life, but in eternity. And then we have this very wonderful verse at the end of the passage. It says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I grew up reciting this at the end of every service <laughs> um, when I went to church with my grandparents as a young child. And I'm struck by the beauty of this because of the phrase redeemer. That wisdom of God ultimately the greatest joy we have is that the wisdom of God chose to save us. That in his wisdom, although he could have started over with creation, he could have tossed out the earth and created a new galaxy, could have created a new creation to get to know and have relationship. He did not start over. In his wisdom, he chose instead to give mercy to us and redeem us through Jesus Christ. To not hold our trespasses against us, to not make us earn his favor by trying to do more good things and less bad things, but instead by offering his son to us so that we would have a way to know him. It seems when you put all of it together and you think about the stars and the creation and the beauty of his word and his mercy in revealing himself to us and the, the delight there is in coming closer to him, that, that he would choose to suffer for that on our behalf, that he would choose to go to the cross and die and shed his blood so that, that our sins would be cleansed. And it takes faith to believe that he did that as the Son of God, but that's the reality. The renewing experience we have by wisdom in our life, by the Holy Spirit in our life, is because Jesus shed his blood for us. And as 1 Corinthians often uh, is often talked about, the word of the cross that God would choose to die is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he goes on to say, Paul in 1 Corinthians says, to, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and is the wisdom of this kind of puts us back um, where we were at the beginning. 2 Corinthians has a similar verse that says, for we, those who choose to live in Christ, those who choose to live by wisdom, we are among those being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we are the fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. That God's wisdom will be polarizing sometimes. It's going to cause you to be liked and to be hated, but it is a joy and a reward to us. Uh, I want you to take a moment and try to think about what the word reward uh, calls to your mind from Scripture. What are the rewards you can think of that are um, that come from wisdom? I'll give you a moment.
then I want you to share with your neighbor what we were just thinking about. I'll give you 30 seconds. I know, we're all very quiet. <laughs> I'm curious to know what you're talking about, and I would love to be part of your conversations afterwards. But I, yeah, I'm curious to know what are your hearts rejoicing in? What is the reward you're rejoicing in? Is it the hope that you have that this life is not the only life you get to live? Is it the comfort that you have in God's presence being with you always? Is it the confidence you have that no matter what situation you face, there will be a guide and an answer for you? Is it the fact that he got, God often does bless the righteous and that there is uh, comfort and, and even material blessings sometimes found with him. There are, those are limited examples, but there are so many things to be thankful for that God's wisdom provides us. God's wisdom not only in the word, God's wisdom in creation, in the sunshine he allows us to have from time to time, <laughs> and in the wisdom of Christ that saves us and allows us to be near to him. And so uh, the, the final part to this is, is how do we respond? And the psalmist gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what that's like. He begins to examine himself and, and says, who can discern his errors? Like, reflecting on himself. How can I discern my own errors? God, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep me from presumptuous things. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And, and what is the motivation of the psalmist in this? He wants to remain in the wisdom of God, to remain in the reward of wisdom and in blessing and fellowship. And so for us, I think part of our response can be having reflective time. I'll invite the ministry team, worship team back up. We can have reflective time if you feel that's appropriate to, to meditate on wisdom and to ask God to begin to delight your heart in wisdom. Because this is the only thing, as we talked about at the beginning, it's the only thing that helps us go through trials, is delighting wisdom. So you may want to reflect on that. But some of you, you may want to recommit to seeking wisdom as the priority, as a delight. Maybe you've been particularly confident in wisdom in the past, but we never know what season we're about to enter into. We never know what challenges lie ahead. And I will be perfectly honest, there are many challenges coming in the cultural climate we live in, many things that will need wisdom. And we all need a fresh revelation of wisdom. We all need a fresh commitment to wisdom and to seeking God first above all else. So maybe you might want to take some time to come to the front and, and to ask God for wisdom. James 1.5 says that God gives wisdom freely to anyone who asks. So you, you will guarantee a yes answer to your prayer. Um, so that, that is the sermon for today. As the worship team leads us into a response to worship, you can reflect on any of the things we've just talked about up here. Do business with the Lord on your own here on the right. There are people willing to pray for you here on the left if you feel like you want to receive a prayer of blessing in relation to receiving wisdom 
or if you have other things in your life that you want to work through, then feel free to do that as well. Um, but I would invite us all to...